This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Kate. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? It's going great. How's it going with you? It's not bad. You know, quarantine life, getting used to it. I'm, I'm here in my closet. Well, I'm in my tent in the basement. Yeah, it's been such a long time. I miss you. It feels like it's been a long time. It hasn't been that long, though. It's really, when's the last time we were in the office together? Like 10 days ago? Yeah, last Wednesday, I think. It feels like a universe ago. I miss you too, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I wasn't sure yeah. if you... Uh, <laughs> you're like, Thank God, yeah, finally I got wanted... away from that guy. <laughs> well, a little bit, but anyway. <laughs> Not really, Ryan. I was actually waiting for your call. Good. Last week, we asked listeners to send in the questions they have about the coronavirus pandemic. Right, and we got a ton of them. And so we wanted to dedicate today's episode to going through and answering some of them. And one question in particular caught our eye and felt like a good place to start. It comes from a listener named Lupita. Lupita asked, why toilet paper? Could you explain why there is a toilet paper shortage? It's such a good question because we've all either seen the empty shelves ourselves or we've seen it going around the internet. So we reached out to our colleague Sharon Turlop, who actually covers, among other things, toilet paper. Sharon, do you mind telling me what is the toilet paper situation in your household right now? Have you had a shortage yourself? So we have not. We've actually been giving out toilet paper because we have three adults in the house and we all went out and proactively bought toilet paper and then realized that we had become stockpilers by accident. So it's your fault that it's not there. Exactly. So we're guiltily handing it out to friends who, uh, you know, can't get to the store, leaving it on doorsteps, that kind of thing. That's nice of you. So what is the answer to that question? Why is it that toilet paper was suddenly nowhere to be found, aside from the fact that you were buying a bunch of it? (laughs) So aside from our house, a lot of it's psychological. We were told that we needed to prepare to be inside more, that we should have enough supply for 14 days in case we had to go into quarantine. So if I see everybody running and clearing the shelves, I'm going to want to run and clear the shelves. And then everybody's doing the same thing. But it's an unnecessary panic, right? I mean, how much toilet paper do American households typically need? The average American, the stat has long been, uses about 57 sheets a day. A one-ply roll of toilet paper has 1,000 sheets in it. Hmm. One person goes through a roll in, you know, it takes them more than two weeks. And if you're buying 20-roll packets, you're going to have toilet paper for a while. Sharon, 57 sheets seems incredibly specific. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> yes. It's the data point that has been used for about a decade now. And maybe it's changed over time. Maybe it's 58 sheets or 53 sheets. So it's missing from our shelves, but there's not an actual shortage. Yeah, it's different than face masks or hand sanitizer where we're actually using more of it. While we're using more toilet paper at home, we're not actually using loads more toilet paper, where we are using more hand sanitizer, face masks, medical equipment. And also toilet paper is easy to make. Kimberly Clark, 
which is one of the biggest makers of toilet paper, was actually taking pictures in different markets around the country of factories and warehouses that had a bunch of toilet paper to reassure people that it's there. It's just taking time to get to stores. Why didn't this happen with food? Well, there's hundreds and hundreds of food options. Toilet paper is one thing. There's one aisle. Every single person needs it. So it's not that people weren't also stocking up on food. It's just there's a lot more food and toilet paper is a unique product. We do hear bidet sales are up, so. (laughs) (laughs) You get a bidet. Okay, so Lapita, there's your answer. You should be finding toilet paper on the shelves soon. Many of the other coronavirus questions you sent us were about public health and personal finance. So for the rest of the episode today, those are going to be the two subjects we're going to take on. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Tuesday, March 24th. With cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. at about 50,000 and climbing, it's not surprising that you all had a ton of questions about the virus itself. So I called Dr. Greg Poland, an infectious disease expert at the Mayo Clinic. He's getting a lot of calls from journalists these days. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, uh, it's uh, usually interviews starting at somewhere around 7.30 or 8 and going till as late as 10 at night. It's just been, you know, 16-hour days. On top of all of his media interviews, Dr. Poland is also the head of the Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, which is working on its own study of a vaccine for the coronavirus. He made time to answer the questions we had for him. Here's a question we've gotten from a couple listeners. Are all these school, restaurant, event shutdowns working? Can we tell if the virus is slowing down or Is it too soon to tell that? It's a little soon in the U.S. It's not too soon in other countries that did this before we did and had much better containment and saw their rates of disease fall down. I'll put it pretty starkly. As best I understand this virus and its transmission dynamics, I think in the U.S. we have two choices. Shut down now or see overwhelming healthcare demands and increasing mortality. That has been the general experience of every country that has had any large-scale number of cases. The reason for it sounds simple, but it works. You cannot get this disease. You cannot if you don't breathe it in or touch a contaminated surface and touch your eyes, nose, or mouth. So if you shut down all non-essentials, and if you can get people to take seriously the admonition for social distancing, you radically decrease the chance that you or anybody else will breathe in the virus or touch a contaminated surface. This is going to be, you know, for the mid to long-term haul. How long is that, the mid to long-term haul? Modelers have suggested anywhere from three, four months to 18 months. And I think it fundamentally relates to the fact that we don't know this virus's behavior over time. In other words, will it abate? And if we continue to wisely follow these recommendations disappear the way SARS did, 
or will it become recurrent and seasonal? No one can tell you that yet. We have a question from Haley who asks, are warm weather climates seeing fewer cases? MIT has just come out with a study saying that transmission may be slower in warmer climates. They're looking at a a band of temperatures between 37 and almost 63 degrees and saying that's where we're seeing the vast majority of cases. At the same time, they go on to say that the warmer weather might make a, quote, modest difference at best. Okay, so here's kind of a long question, but it's from Neele. I have a 15-month-old daughter who I send to daycare as both me and my wife work. The companies we work for have asked employees to work from home. However, daycares are still open, and because it's near impossible for us to work at home when our daughter is around, we're sending her to daycare. At what point does the risks of sending my daughter to daycare instead of keeping her at home become too high? Yeah, it's a very difficult question. I think if you wait till you start seeing high numbers of cases, you've waited too long. There's already community transmission. So the risk becomes too high before you know it. But I would also say that it depends on the context and the size of the daycare. In other words, if it's the next door neighbor taking care of two or three kids, that logically seems like a different issue than a daycare where there are 30 or 40 kids. I mean, I think we're all struggling with this in terms of mm-hmm. we know our context, like my family's context, we go to the grocery store. Our neighbors, they don't go to the grocery store. They get delivery. Going to the grocery yeah. store is too risky for them. So yeah. everybody's risk appetite, to use a kind of Wall Street Journal term, is different. Yeah, that's well said, Kate. I, I think everybody's values and, as you say, tolerance for risk will be different, just as it is in other domains of life. I think, though, perhaps one difference is to take seriously what science we do have around this and use that in formulating your own family's plan. All right. So a question from Edward. As an American with an autoimmune disease, I've been searching for more reporting or information on the statistics related to underlying conditions and how they impact individuals who contract COVID-19. Which ones put folks at the highest risks? You know, part of the difficulty is we have not quite yet three months experience with this virus. That's it. So we're just starting to see some of the the finer point research. I know of no papers yet that have distinguished among autoimmune diseases. But what we can say is this, any disease, autoimmune, cancer, whatever it is, any disease that has an adverse effect on the immune system itself, on the host, the person's immune system, is going to increase risk. Any disease that requires medication that has as a side effect suppressing the immune system is another condition that's going to increase risk. Because of the respiratory problems we know COVID-19 brings, what about smokers and vapors? Is there any greater risk for them? Yes. While there have not been distinct studies 
What we can say is every respiratory disease we know of is worse than people who have uh, lung damage and chronic irritation. Smoking and vaping fit both of those. In every country where we have high rates of smokers, the case fatality rate has been higher. So this is, I think, a critical issue that people have to understand. Layer smoking with COVID-19, you've layered a considerably more adverse risk onto your health and well-being. Okay, now here's a question from Eliza. How will our health change by being indoors? I think in the short term, our physical health uh, will be preserved (laughs) by not being around other people. In the long term, it's not a good idea to be indoors all the time. So nobody's saying stay indoors. They're saying stay away from other individuals. I think, though, that the truth is that we're going to be spending more time indoors. And the kind of health that suffers there is mental health and emotional well-being. Because we are social creatures, people meant to live in community. I mean, I'm a type A extrovert. This is driving me crazy. It's pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) My wife says, you know, the only reason you're able to do so many interviews is because you have to get X number of words out a day. (laughs) I suspect she's right. Well, we are happy recipients of those words. Well, thank you. Thanks much. Be safe. Coming up, with the market turmoil, layoffs, and businesses everywhere shut down, we answer the questions you have about your money. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Welcome back. Right now, everyone is trying to figure out what our new normal means for their finances. So there were a lot of questions that we put to our personal finance editor, Beret Lamb. One of the questions that we got from a listener uh, named Martin, he asked, how soon can consumers expect a recovery of their 401k if they did nothing but remain in existing investments? That's a good question. We're getting so many retirement questions right now. You know, being in the personal finance space, whenever the market swings, most of the people I follow will say, don't look at your 401k. Do you see those tweets too? Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I did There's not so follow many. that advice. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many. I actually, I've I've held out. I haven't checked. Oh man, good for you. I, yeah, it's good advice. Don't do it. All it's going to feel like is just a giant punch in the stomach. 
Right, exactly. And so even though I see that every time the market goes down, I do think that there's like a point there, which is that staying in the markets for retirement is a long game. So in terms of how fast your 401k will recover, that really depends on when you entered the market. I think it's important to remember that while the gains from last year have been almost wiped out at this point, we had a bull market for 11 years, which means when market shares are rising generally. Say you started your retirement fund 10 years ago, you're still doing pretty good compared with 10 years ago. On the retirement front, I really encourage our listeners to read our retirement coverage from our columnist, Ann Turgeson. One thing she says in this kind of market environment is that when you continue to contribute, your portfolio may rebound quicker because you're buying more shares to maintain your equity allocation. So if you don't contribute and you don't rebalance, then you'll have less equities when the rebound comes. Mm -hmm. So that's something to think about if you're able to keep contributing to your retirement funds. In other words, I mean, as prices of stocks essentially fall, you can sort of think of it like stocks are on sale right now. So if you stay in the market, you'll still have a high percentage of stocks. And so when it does rebound, you'll be there to catch the rebound and then hopefully make some of your money back. Exactly. And so if you're short on cash, obviously don't contribute to your 401k. But if you can, then that's something that you can consider in terms of recovery. I would just encourage listeners to remember that we don't know how long this will go on for, but to stay calm and to Mm -hmm. wait for that recovery. It's a long game. Mm -hmm. We have another question from a listener named Elizabeth, um, which is a bit more optimistic, I hope. She writes, I work in tech and can work from home for the foreseeable future. If I did receive $1,000 from the government, what is the best way for me to use it to stimulate the economy? Should I put it into my target date fund, Roth IRA? Should I give it to someone in the restaurant industry? Should I blow it completely on ordering takeout myself? I want to help the economy. I want to help people who are suddenly jobless, but I'm not sure what is the best way. So if you're in this really fortunate situation that our listener is in, this is a really personal choice. If you want to stimulate the economy and you want to help the workers in need, I would do some reading up on the industries that are really hurting that you want to support. Like, for example, I know the website Eater has a really great roundup of the restaurants and hospitality groups that are currently starting relief funds for their workers. So if that's something that matters to you, you can put your money towards that. There's also ways to donate to public health organizations. If you want to support your local hospitals, there's definitely a way to do that. So I would think about what matters to you in your life and who you want to support and put your funds towards the causes that you feel matter to you. Mm -hmm. A lot of the listeners who wrote to us are college students who were Mm -hmm. thinking about graduating and entering the job market. I mean, people who are going to graduate this spring from college... I don't even know. What do you what do you say to them? I would say be financially conservative as much as you can. I think a lot of them are already doing that, though. Like the mm-hmm. college students who've been sent home, most of them are at their parents' house. And so as someone who graduated in 2007, I also moved back into my parents' house for a little mm-hmm. bit. It wasn't what I wanted, but it's what I felt like was the financially conservative thing to do. I think it's a bummer, Mm. I do, that, you know, when you graduate college, we all have this vision, right? We're going to move to our dream city and have our dream job. I think the students that are graduating now, it'd be great to, like, have a buddy system with someone who graduated in 2008 Mm -hmm. who can tell them it's going to be a little bit of a wait, but it's going to be okay. I think those of us who graduated around that time, we were okay eventually, but it took a little bit of time. 
That's all for today, Tuesday, March 24th. We couldn't get to all your questions today, but we'll cover a number of them in future episodes. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you tomorrow.